When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is a special July 4th edition of the Sportacast. Is it July 4th, Eben? But doesn't this publish on July 5th? Uh, it's the holiday weekend, Scott. Be excited. Okay. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Our guest is Sal Galatioto, founder of Galatioto Sports Partners. And Sal, one, welcome. But you, you know why we thought this would be a good time to celebrate with you? We're in the celebrating mood. Because if you remember, you were our beta test episode of this podcast. Do you remember all those years ago? Do you remember that? Well, I remember the, the podcast. I have no idea what a beta test is, <laughs> but if I was, I'm happy. Yeah, well, you should be happy because obviously the folks liked it. Our former employer said, why don't we record an episode and let's see if everybody likes it before we decide if we're going to commit to this. So you were our guy on that test episode and we're still doing it here. So something must have gone well. We called in the big guns. Yeah. Wait a minute, they actually liked me. Nobody likes me. I know, I know, which we were surprised, but and yet here we are, low those many years later, doing this, and you're still doing it, which is one of the things we want to talk about. It. You've been doing this. Tell the people who don't know about your background. I'm a. I'm going to use two words that like younger people might not know, right? <laughs> younger people might not know these two words: Lehman Brothers. <laughs> yes, that's true. Actually, I started this business before Lehman Brothers. I started it in '96, and my first client was the San Antonio Spurs. And in 1996, you could have purchased the San Antonio Spurs for $80 million, which is about the contract for the sixth man on their bench right now. Now, the question I have, though, back then, how many people do you think you could have found who said $80 million? No way. I'm not spending $80 million on a sports team. Everybody. Are you kidding me? I mean, people said it's a bubble. Uh, why do people want to buy these things? It's a vanity purchase. There's no real business here. You got to remember, I think for about the first 10 years I did this, 80% of the teams that I sold to people, 
uh, lost money. People would laugh at me and say, how do you find people who buy things that do nothing but lose money? Yet the people that made those investments, they're laughing at everybody who told them it was a bubble. Well, the question I have for you then is, why did they do it? There were, I mean, two reasons. One, it was a vanity play. There was certainly part of that uh, uh, on all these purchases. There's a vanity part of it. Or two, how many of them had the vision to see what sports and entertainment and media and real estate and finance, and we'll talk a lot more about that, but how many of them looked ahead and said, no, 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 no. This isn't just about that game day experience and the tickets and the people in the building. There's much more to it. Yeah, I think it's about 50-50. The ones that wanted to buy their favorite team didn't care, right? You made a gazillion dollars because you came up with some shoe brand. I don't know. And you were a fan of, of Team X and you have been since you were a little kid. And now you have the money and the opportunity to buy it. And you bought it and you had fun. And then there were people who were real visionaries who saw brands that they felt were cheap and that they could build a media empire through them. There were people that actually understood the media, the potential media content value of these teams. You want to name some names? Well, how about George Steinbrenner? You remember when George, back in the 70s, bought the Yankees? He, he, he put in a million. His partners, I think, in Cleveland, from Cleveland put in a million. And CBS gave him back a $6.8 million note. Everybody who looked at that thing said, it's an old building. It's a terrible neighborhood. The team stinks. The brand is in decline. You know what George got? He got the Yankee brand. was incredible. And he understood that New York was the number one media market in the United States. And he went out and he understood free agency and rebuilt that team and rebuilt that brand. and. Are you kidding me? You talk about a great investment. That's a great investment. At what point, Sal, do you think the the, the market generally turned from that being a, the, the opinion of a few visionaries to that being the accepted belief about sports? Was there a specific deal, a specific moment that you can think back on that you think kind of changed the whole thought process around sports as assets? Yeah. You know what? To me, um, the deal that that changed my life and, and, you know, helped me become a, a, somebody important in this business was the, I'm going to call it the Redskins because that's what it was. The late nineties Washington Redskins deal where Dan Snyder gave me the opportunity and which I will always be thankful for because I was a, a, a team of one it was me uh, to work with him to figure out a way to buy the Redskins. And the NFL was profitable. Washington, D.C. is a great market. That was a great brand. It had a tremendous fan base. And we figured out a way to win that thing. And he understood economic. He wanted the brand, but, the, but he also understood the economics of the NFL and that how they were going to go up. I think he was one of the first people, but then other people that followed really got it. People started to see media content value as one of the main drivers here. And boy, were they right. I mean, what other kind of media content do 99.5% of the people that watch it, watch it live, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, Nothing, and yeah. as technology continues to improve and people are able to watch shows anytime they want, edit out the commercials and do anything they want. 
the value of this content is going to continue to go up. That's why when people tell you this is a bubble, you know, you know, and people are overpaying, you know who tells you that somebody overpaid? The guy who lost the bid. I've never met a guy that lost the bid who didn't say the guy who won the bid over, didn't overpay. Yeah, he overpaid. Okay, but five years later, who's laughing? It's like we're in, and now to fast forward to where we are now, valuations are so high now that we're in a kind of, it seems to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, we're in kind of a new phase now where things are so almost prohibitively expensive that deals now have to be financed by either the the 20 richest people in the world or a private equity firm that has tens of billions of dollars of assets under management. It seems as though we've gone from the mom and pop phase into the, this is a really good growth investment phase. And now kind of heading into this world where who knows if there's enough people that have the money to buy these things moving forward. Not true. Great. You know why? <laughs> this Tell is great. Me. Well, anytime Evan speaks, I know this is the wrong portion of the show. So we're <laughs> good. Capitalism is the greatest economic system ever invented. And it, it makes billionaires by the bushel. And guess what? The number of teams is fixed, more or less, right? Every 25 years you have expansion. So you're getting more and more people that are able to buy these things, and the number of these things doesn't increase. So what happens is you have more demand than you have supply, and when that happens, let me, let me try to think. I, I didn't fall asleep during this economics <laughs> class. If demand continues to increase and supply stays static, the price goes up. And, and that is what I'm seeing. I have never been busier. Ever. We, we were closing on a sale of a significant stake of an NBA team. That should be right after 4th of July. We just closed a, on a significant stake of a Major League Baseball team at record valuations. Okay. I didn't have a lack of bidders. Okay. I had plenty of bidders. And when I'm on the buy side, I can see how my clients want to buy these things. And as long as there are four or five people in every deal that can write the check, you create competitive tension. They're going to be four losers. And I hate to call people who are billionaires losers, but they are <laughs> one winner. And so when the next deal comes up, those four guys have had the bitter experience of losing because they thought they could get a deal. And they, there's no such thing in this business. And they're even more motivated. One one sale that a lot of people that I talk to look back on as as a deal in this world was the the Ricketts sale when, when he purchased when the Ricketts family bought the Cubs. I know a deal that that you did back in two thousand eight two thousand nine, right at a time when the economy was uh, in a pretty rough place. A lot of people now are tossing out the recession word. It's obviously nowhere near the situation we're in right now. Is nothing like what it was back in two thousand eight two thousand nine two thousand ten. Um, but I'm curious what you think about the economy right now. Inflation is is pretty wild. A couple of weeks ago, the Dow had, I think, its worst its worst week since the start of the pandemic. How you think that that the, the economic troubles we're seeing right now, how that affects a lot of the business that you're doing, the sale of minority stakes and the sale of controlling stakes? Okay, well, let me, uh, I'm great at predicting the past. I'm not good at predicting the future. <laughs> I don't know what the hell the economy is going to do. That's above my pay grade. To say that it's a mess, yeah, I guess it's a mess. But let me go back to the Great Recession, okay? Tom hired me to represent him in buying the Cubs seven weeks before Bear Stearns 
I don't, I'm going to say they went bankrupt. They technically didn't, but the government saved them, okay? Got J.P. Morgan to buy it. All right. During that time period, we were working on a Cubs transaction. AIG should have gone bankrupt. The world banking system almost collapsed. Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. The freaking Tribune companies, which own the Cubs, went bankrupt. So we had to buy the Cubs, and people don't remember this, out of a 363 sale and prepackaged bankruptcy. And we wound up paying $845 million, which at the time was the highest price ever paid for a baseball team, not even close, okay, in the middle of a great recession. Now, why did we do that? We didn't do it because I'm stupid. I am stupid, but that's not the reason we did it. It's because there were three other bidders nipping at our heels, right? Okay, so during that same time frame, there were seven control transactions, seven, okay? Six of them were record prices. The seventh wasn't, and that was the Pittsburgh Steelers sale because it was one brother's board and the other brother's, and in that sale... I had a bidder who put in an all-cash offer, which would have made it the highest price ever paid for for an NFL team. In the middle of the worst recession I'd ever seen. Who was that bidder, if you can say? I can't. Okay. He lost, but he's a huge Steelers fan, and and trust me, I remember their financial advisor kept asking me, how's he going to finance this? And I said to him, he's going to write a check. It's like, no, no. How's he going to finance it? He's going to write a check. He's going <laughs> to wire you the money. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah. I mean, what other asset class can you say that about? Right? And as we approach, I mean, these are troubled economic times, but I'm not seeing any resistance. Look, the fact that Chelsea sold for what it, chel- uh, it sold for, the Broncos just sold for $4.65 billion, I think was the announced price. I mean, that's a mighty charming price. Uh, I mean, what was the deal before that in the NFL? Two, two. Yeah, Tepper. Yeah, the NFL. The, the NFL likes to double every few years, Sal. When it, when a team comes up, do, so I ask you. Then I know you suck at you know reading the future. You just said that, but is it sustainable? That let's just say we're we're, we're just you know the the what ifs here, and we're chatting with Sal Galatioto, the founder of Galatioto Sports Partners. What what do you tell me, Sal, if, if the NFL team, let's say the Seattle Seahawks, because, you know, we the estate of Paul Allen, we know is going to at some point sell that team. Seahawks come on the market three, four years from now. Am I to expect that thing's going to go for eight plus billion dollars? I don't know if it's going to go for eight, but it's going to go more than Denver. Right. Significantly more. Right. Are these transactions getting more difficult? Are they getting more difficult? The The folks I've spoke to and I understand when we're dealing with, by the way, war and oligarchs and governments, I got it. But I keep hearing the Chelsea sale was the most difficult M&A transaction. And these are the participants saying this. And by the way, not just sports, the most difficult M&A transaction they'd ever seen. Is that just a circumstance special to that deal? Or are things becoming more difficult? No, I think it's, it's specific to that deal. I mean, look how clean Denver was. I mean, they had an auction and the person that bid the highest won. I mean, it, it that was very special. I mean, you had a forced sale. You had government in, involvement. You had, I mean, it, it's a mess. You know, that was a mess. But by and large, I'm seeing, look, I'm seeing great deal flow. I'm seeing huge demand. 
it, it hasn't been impacted. Now, will it be? I, I don't know. I can't predict the future. Two years ago, there was no, essentially no private equity ownership of U.S. sports. Now we have the NBA, MLS, MLB, and NHL all allowing private equity uh, firms to invest and buy, buy passive stakes in teams. How much has that changed the market? When you're selling an LP stake that is small enough that a private equity firm can buy it, are you seeing more interest from individuals? Are you seeing more interest from firms now? Is it is it a mix? I'm curious how much the, 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 those rule changes have changed your job in the past two years, 18 months. It's helped, right? Because you have new buyers that you didn't have before, right? Before, my total universe perspective buyers was high net worth individuals. But now you have institutions bidding on the same limited partnership stakes. So the more bidders you have, the more pressure you're going to have on in, in upward movement of price. Are, are they more rational, the PE f- funds who, who maybe don't have the, the kind of no emotion, play, yeah, no emotion the, the emotions, in that one. Exactly. How, how different is, is a PE bidder from a, from a rich local guy bidder? I refuse to answer on the basis that I'm going to screw up my business. <laughs> Fair. We'll see if you find a different way. Let me ask you this. I'm client A. I come into your office and I'm like, Sal, I want to buy into sports. I want to be a sports team owner. You know, I'm, I'm fine if I start at 5 10%. That's fine. A little learning ground training. But this is where I want to be. Where's the best value? You know what? It, I don't do it by league. First of all, if you came in, I'd ask you, what's your favorite sport? Right? Because if you really want to invest and if you're going to be competitive, you're going to win and put the last dollar on the table if it's your favorite sport. Because besides scarcity value and the economic value and the media content value, there's also ego gratification value and fun value if you're a high net worth. Well, then you know me, man. I'm buying buying the Ottawa Senators and putting my son in goal. Okay. So you love hockey. So I'm going to tell you what you should focus on is investing in your favorite sport in hockey. Now, we're going to go through a spectrum of, of what's available in hockey and, and things will develop over time. I'd like to know, does geography matter to you, right? You're in New York. Does it matter to you whether the team is 100 miles away or 3,000 miles away? I'm going to ask you if there's a brand that you love, right? What's your favorite team? If there's a limited partnership stake in that team available, but I need to know what that team is. I put all that information into my, and how much are you willing to spend? Very important, right? I put all that information into my database. And then over time, opportunities come up and I'll pick people out of my database and I'll show them the opportunity. And some people will be all over it. And some people will say, it's a team in Winnipeg. Where's Winnipeg? You know, or as, how, how cold as, is it there? As Clark Gillies, as Clark Gillies once said, when they asked him where Moose Jaw was, because they would tease him as from Moose Jaw, he said, it's "I know it's in Saskatchewan, by the way." That's right. He said Moose Jaw is about six feet from a moose's ass. <laughs> There's our headline for the That's podcast. That's what Clark Gillies said. I didn't say it. I'm just quoting him. I, and I could see Jethro saying it right. And there's Nystrom on his right, laughing about it all, all yeah. the way. But I, I'm glad you said that the part about. You know, d- distance, does that matter to you? Because I remember, I won't name names and I won't name teams, but one who is a guy who is currently a control owner of a major sports team said when he was looking, he, he said his criteria was if the game ended, could he have his head on his pillow by 1230 a.m.? 
<laughs> if the answer was yes, hop on his jet and be home. If the answer was yes, he would consider buying that team. If the answer was no, he didn't want to hear about it. I actually think this is an interesting part of the Broncos sale. All of the NFL teams controlling stakes that have sold in the past decade, the the Bills, the Panthers, the Jaguars, the Dolphins, the Browns, all of those are on the East Coast. The, the, Brown, the, the Broncos were the first NFL team controlling stake to sell in a really long time in which someone who's on the West Coast could take a private jet and be there relatively quickly. I think that actually factored, I think that changed kind of the makeup of who was bidding and who was not bidding in some ways just because of the geography of Denver. Yeah. And look, some people are completely, they don't care. It's a business transaction for them, right? If they look at the NFL and they think they're going to get a really good return and there's going to be asset growth and it's going to be insulated from downtrends in the economy, they're going to, they're going to bid, right? And they did bid. I mean, there were there were a significant number of bidders in, in the Denver transaction. And that's why he got a high price. How hard is it to raise money, Sal? I, I mean, I'm, we talked about the PE and the funds, and the, but it, it's not easy to raise money, even not though right the now. target acquisition is sports. No, it's not. Look, it's not easy to raise money no matter what you're doing. I, I find that to be the most frustrating thing I do. But um, it's doable. It takes time. It takes effort. You need to know what the hell you're talking about. You have to do a good job selling the product, but it's doable. Right. Another thing that was doable, you can always raise your bid. Now, true or false, tell me this story if you can. You were selling the Golden State Warriors. There's Joe Lacob at, what was it, four something, right? Four five. Four fifty. There's Joe Lacob at 450. There's a certain founder of Oracle who everybody knew was interested in the Warriors who was told that there was a bid of 450 Fill in the blanks. That is that true that Larry Ellison could have had the Warriors if he raised his bid like 40 million bucks, but he said he didn't believe you? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make an enemy out of like the richest guy in the world. Well, he hasn't I jumped back no into it. He I hasn't no jumped problem. back in. There's inflation, there's COVID, there's freaking war in Europe. I don't need to like make another enemy. I've, 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 well, you know, we, I've never heard Larry tell the story of, my God, like I could have, I should have, I didn't, but... In the tale of woulda, coulda, shoulda, is he on Mount Rushmore? Look, there are a lot of people that have looked at transactions and they thought that they had reached the pinnacle of where prices were going, okay, and walked away from them. Look, you know how many bidders CBS had for the Yankees when George bought them? How many? Try like none. They couldn't give the thing away. I mean, it, it, Fox sold the Dodgers to Frank McCourt for a parking lot in South Boston. The Dodgers. Are you kidding me? I mean, the world has changed. And by the way, in that bankruptcy sale, Fox came in and tried to buy it back. I know. How great is that? Yeah, they wanted it back. What I was told, by the way, and again, you were not a part of that transaction, but I was told that Rupert Mur Murdoch said, get rid of this thing, the baseball team, because it was the only thing on his balance sheet that showed a loss. And it just bothered him. And everybody was begged him, don't do it. Don't do it. This, we should hold on to the team. I don't like that mark on the balance sheet. Get rid of it. Well, you know what? Analysts kill public companies when they have assets that are losing money. So it's the easiest thing in the world is to dump it. Look, how many corporations owned sports assets? And these companies were media companies. Turner, right? Disney, Fox. 
And you would think if anybody understood the value of media content and the future of media content value, it'd be those companies. Well, they sure do now because what we're seeing is we're seeing folks looking to perhaps go out and buy these leagues, even if it's not their tier one sports rights. But uh, you might as well own the content if you're going to have to pay a whole lot to show it. So you might as well own the content. Well, especially if you're talking about secondary and tertiary leagues where, I mean, the price of entry is, is less than you would pay for the media rights. Why not? You know? The thing is, you're really gambling on growth, right? The dominant sports are going to be here for a long time. Look, one of the other things that people are looking at is technology, okay? As technology continues to accelerate, the product life cycle of companies shrinks. It gets shorter and shorter. My biggest client when I was a baby banker was Kodak. They were like the greatest. They were going to be around for a million years. Where are they now? <laughs> nobody. There's a scrap heap of history. You do know, by the way, that Kodak owned the IP to digital yes, photography. Yes, I do. Okay. But Wang, you know, did uh, uh, display type word processing. They're gone. Digital computers gone. Look, I'll make a bet with you. I bet the odds are better that in 100 years, the Yankees will be here than Apple will be here. Right. Well, Aaron Judge will still be playing. But I'm saying, could you imagine if you if you had let's if you had a product guy come to you, your Kodak, a product guy comes to you and says, "Look, I've got this thing. It's a big cranky thing. It's not you know what we know today, but it, it takes a digital image. We don't need the old style film." Yeah. And they say, "What are you nuts? Get out of here with that idea. We've got we're, we're Kodak. Everybody who loves to take pictures, and the, nobody wants to do that." Oops. But look. They make mistakes, but there are businesses <laughs> that just go away. The, the people who were in the, in, in the telex business, good luck with that. People, uh, how about people who used to record, make those little recorders that you talked into? I remember dictating into those stupid things. Yeah. They're gone. Uh, I mean, have you seen a, a phone booth recently? There's like none, right? <laughs> This is this is happening right now. We're just not aware of what the thing is that yeah, what we're is. what we're missing. Right? I mean, I, I, in hearing you say that, Scott, I, it made me think of of Zed Run, the the metaverse horse racing platform. Right? The whole pitch of that is we can do horse racing digitally without having to breed the horse. Yeah, you can bet the horse, on horses. Give right? the horse drugs. You can watch it anywhere you want to. We can race them down the Vegas Strip because it's all digital. Yes, but Sal, let me let me ask you that. That's a great example because I have yeah. said this forever, Sal. The minute sports team owners figure out how they can stage competitions, fill arenas, broadcast everything, but without having to have players, <laughs> they'll do it. And we're inching closer to that. We're pretty, People we're pretty darn close. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Look, artificial intelligence scares the crap out of me. All right. It just does. I mean, I, but you can't stop technological change, right? Even a troglodyte like me understands that. That, you know, historically, you know, when somebody invented the wheel, I'm sure there was somebody who said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Who's going to use that? <laughs> you know, and technology is going to continue to move on. But but I think it's going to take longer for technology to impact live sports. It will. People love it. People grow up with it. Uh, people identify with the team. Look, there's nothing like these brands. Think about it. Yeah, I'm not loyal to anything car. else like a team. Yeah. Yeah, you buy a car and then somebody makes a better car and you switch from that brand to the next brand. 
There are a whole bunch of academic studies that show that if you're nine and a half years old and you're wearing the hat of your favorite team, you're more likely to change your religion than to change your team affiliation. Yep. What other product can you say that about? For, for, it, Evan, it, hold is, on one it, more. Forgive, yeah. forgive me, that, Evan, Evan, give me one more. This is because it, it leads right from there. I saw a comedian recently, and forgive me, I don't remember the name, but he was talking about grown-ups in sports jerseys. And he's like, well, if you really peel it back, like, what are you, you, what you're doing is wearing the work uniform of a grown-up you don't know. Right. Like, who does that? <laughs> and sometimes a child, sometimes an 18-year-old, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes someone way younger than you. Who does that? But it's the only, pro- the only brand that, that, that people do that for, right? I, I mean, I stand in Penn Station when there's a Ranger game, got 2 million people with Ranger jerseys walking around, and they identify with that team like they own it. It's a unique product. Is, is that as true for younger generations? I mean, Scott, you talk a lot about your, your son as your focus group of one. Does he have a favorite hockey team? I know there's specific players that he likes. And when Corey Crawford was on the, on the Blackhawks, he was rooting for the Blackhawks. I yes. wonder if the idea of rooting for a team actually fundamentally changes at some point soon as betting on player props and fantasy sports and video games where you can trade players. Well, it's a, hey, really Abby, let me answer your question. Yeah. Let me answer your question. And Sal, let me know what you think because it's both old and new. I think that was part of the genius of Ted Turner. Yeah. When TBS was the superstation, I could watch all the Braves games growing up in New York. So I, I had an affinity for the Braves and, and Rick, uh, Rick Mailer, I thought he always pitched like every day. I'm like, hey, Rick Mailer's pitching both ends of the doubleheader. Like I knew the Braves players because I could watch them. But I can do that now. Everybody can watch Everybody. any team every <laughs> exactly. night. Right. Exactly. You can yeah. do that now. So my son, because he watches the NHL package, he doesn't say, I want to watch the Edmonton Oilers tonight. He says, I want to see Connor McDavid. I want to see Austin Matthews. I want to see Matt Barzal. That's the way he thinks. Not so much. Like all he does with the Blackhawks is right now, oh, they're not going to win. But he does have a fancy for individual players. So that, let me ask you then, Sal, right now, the Yankees offered Aaron Judge 200 and something million dollars, right? And Judge says, no, thank you. And he's having a fantastic year. Did they underestimate his value? Do you think, is there an understanding that there is also now great value, not only in the team brand? but in the athletes themselves as brand, that people care a lot and identify a lot with the particular players, not just the uniform. I'm going to give you a, a Nixonian answer to that. You're it not depends, a crook. It depends on the player. Some players are charismatic beyond their ability on the field. All right? You have guys that are just tremendous personalities, and they garner fans. But, but it doesn't mean your team goes away if, you, if that player leaves, right? I'm a Yankee fan. I'm going to be a Yankee fan. I love Aaron Judge. He's my favorite player, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? I'm still going to be a Yankee fan. Yeah, but the calculus is different for the team. It's not just how many wins above, right? Not only does he help us win games, there has to be a calculus of TV ratings and attendance and merch. There's, there's a, it's a, that's the business yeah, of sport these days. You have to weigh that against what the hell am I paying this guy? Right. I mean, at some point, the return isn't enough. Right. And and that's what's going to cause a little bit of friction in terms of where contracts are going for players. But they're going up. But revenues across the board are going up. 
All right. Favorite favorite sports business story. You've been doing this a long time, Sal. Favorite sports business story that maybe I haven't heard. Oh, God, you've heard all my stories. <laughs> I, I probably have, but the audience well, hasn't. <laughs> favorite sports business story. Uh, God, uh, I, I guess I guess my favorite sports business story is uh, selling selling the New Jersey, well, first buying the New Jersey Nets. No, no, that's not it. It's selling limited partnership stakes in the New York Yankees for George. Now, Nothing is more limiting than being a limited partner and, to George you know Steinbrenner. Comes from, I'll tell you exactly where that, state, uh, that statement comes from. We were selling LP stakes for the Yankees way back in the day. Obviously, George around. And I love George. I have a huge amount of respect for him. And it was an honor to work for him. But we were selling limited partnership stakes in the Yankees. And I, I went to George with nine perks for prospective investors. And the minimum investment was $25 million, which at the time was a ton of money, probably like a hundred million today. All right. So the first one was preferred parking. He said, no. Second one was preferred seating. He said, no. The third one was you get a world champion, world series ring. If the Yankees win the world series, he said, no, I, I decide who gets the ring. I went down the list. He said no to all of them. So I said, George, what do you get if you put $25 million into the Yankees? And he looked at me and said, you get the right to buy a ticket at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> and you know how long it took to sell those limited partnerships? Yeah. Yep. Three weeks. You know <laughs> yep. why? It's the freaking Yankees. Give me a break. Wow. And, and by the way, I was high-fiving my guys because we thought we got such a high valuation. The guys that bought those things, they're laughing at me right now. Yeah, they got it. All right. Sal Galatioto, founder of Galatioto Sports Partners. Thanks so much, buddy. I appreciate it going from beta test to July 4th, all those many years later. Well, it's been a pleasure and you guys are great and uh, continued success. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Sal. Oh, Eben, how much do you love talking to Sal? Like perhaps the best storyteller in sports business. And I, not that that's a category that comes with a sash, but you know, you got to love talking to Sal. Yeah, I think when you've been in this industry for as long as way back when the, the Spurs were valued at, at $80 million <laughs> all the way through to now, you've seen a lot of things. You've seen uh, some great things. I'm sure some things that are extremely frustrating. Yeah, he is. Hearing his perspective is great because again, he's he's been in this since it was a mom and pop business all the way through to it was a yeah a, a, an asset class that only the, the richest people in, a, in in the world could afford. Uh, yeah, I, I would say running the uh, sports advisory at Lehman Brothers as the global financial system is crumbling, you know a little bit of something about frustration. Absolutely. Unbelievable. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Our digital media editor is Cora Veltman. She likes it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will very soon become the Sportico Media Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.